0: Hello listeners, if you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.
1: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not
2: because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: you speed, John Glenn. Roger, 0 G and I feel fine. You my be right. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11.
2: Houston uh, Tranquility Base here. The
1: Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man.
0: Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 408 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 2, Mission Days 2 through 7. Now that Skylab has been rescued, I want to cover some of the things the crew was doing during the first days before they freed the solar wing on June 7th of 1973. We will start the day after they got the parasol installed, which would be mission day two. Since the station was beginning to cool now, NASA and the crew decided to go ahead and begin the original flight plan. It was pretty hot work at the beginning, but the astronauts did have the multiple docking adapter or MDA where it was about 60 degrees Fahrenheit to retreat to. NASA's first priority was to get Skylab back into solar inertial attitude. This was both the coolest attitude and would point the Apollo telescope mount's solar arrays directly at the sun. Thus the crew would have the most electrical power possible with the solar wing still stuck. In order to line up with the sun, the station was equipped with fine sun sensors capable of an accuracy of one-tenth of a degree. But to use the sun sensors, they had to already be within 10 degrees of the sun, which they were not. Pete Conrad gave some direction to mission control, but the ground couldn't get it close enough, so they turned the job of alignment over to the crew. Pete and Paul Weitz looked out the sun side window in the aft portion of the multiple docking adapter, and when they agreed on an attitude correction, Joe Kerwin entered the correction in the Apollo telescope mount's computer, and it would execute the maneuver. When everyone agreed they were within 10 degrees of alignment, the crew switched the mode to solar inertial on the Apollo telescope mount and let the computer do the final positioning. On mission day 3, the crew woke up to find the temperature had dropped to around 95 degrees in the station. The crew was anxious to get to work and begin the activation of the workshop. When setting up their urine collection system, Pete was selected to be the test subject and had a big failure. It seemed there was not enough vacuum through the system to pull the urine down the tube. The crew solved this problem by adding a fecal bag in the collector. As the station cooled, the crew noticed there were definite hot spots where the parasol was not covering the workshop. For example, water tank 1 on the other side of the scientific airlock, was still hot and the fittings were 130 degrees Fahrenheit. As a result, the crew had difficulty getting the wardroom water hoses on the tanks. The fittings just wouldn't work as well at 130 degrees as opposed to 70 degrees. The crew discovered all the tubes of hand cream and two-thirds of the toothpaste had burst open. On the plus side, The workshop was getting activated and the crew was becoming accustomed to moving around the large area in microgravity. At the end of every day, the crew was required to radio to the ground their intake food and their output in waste. It seemed like Pete was having the most problems. He couldn't eat all of his corn because when inflating the bag, it burst, and corn went everywhere. Anyway, the food and water data allowed the doctors to calculate supplement peel needs and have the information to the crew in the next morning. The crew also used this time to discuss how things were going and the next day's flight plan. May the 28th, 1973, Mission Day 4 was a day of first. The crew was up on schedule at 6 a.m. They had been sleeping later to make up for that long first day. For the first time, it was cool enough to have breakfast in the wardroom. It was Dr. Joe Kerwin's first time to draw blood in space. He did it for himself and his crewmates. Then put it in the centrifuge and froze it for return to Earth. It was the first runs of the major medical experiments. Lower body negative pressure and exercise tolerance on the bicycle ergometer. Temperatures in the workshop were still about 95 degrees as the crew prepared for the first major medical test. The lower body negative pressure was expected to be a bit stressful. It was a simulation of gravity's effect on blood distribution and thus on how hard the heart had to work to maintain blood pressure. Here's how it worked. The astronaut got inside a metal cylinder about the size of a garbage can up to the waist. Then he wrapped an airtight rubberized cloth seal around his waist. Next, air was pulled out of the can, reducing the pressure around the legs and lower abdomen. This would cause blood to pool in the lower half of the body as though the subject were standing erect in gravity. Blood pressure and heart rate was monitored to see how the heart responded to the loss of available blood. This would be an indirect test of whether the astronaut subject was going to have trouble after returning to Earth at the end of the mission. Since the amount of blood in circulation was known to decrease. In space, it was thought that a gradual decrease in tolerance might be seen. Dr. Kerwin ran the test at 30, 40, and 50 milliliters of mercury, which converts to one half to one PSIG. Paul Weitz was the test subject. Paul's blood pressure and heart rate remained normal. Then Paul tried the exercise bike and, as suspected, had a significant mechanical efficiency problem in riding the bike. They decided to end the run with a little under three minutes to go, both for the mechanical reasons and because of an obvious high temperature. It was just too hot in there to set the bike on 200 watts. One of the problems was, as the resistance on the bike was increased, Paul would have to rise to push the pedals harder, and the strap holding him to the seat cut off the circulation to his legs. At less resistance, this was not a problem.
2: The crew put in a long, trying day activating the workshop. Getting things organized and in the proper place was a chore in itself. However, they were discovering to their satisfaction that moving big pieces of gear presented no problem in the weightless environment. By noon, Monday the 28th, with the workshop completely activated, primary emphasis was on getting the biomedical experiment started. This was the first in a series of lower body negative pressure and vector cardiogram experiments. Paul Weitz, the subject, Joe Kerwin, the observer. There followed a workout on the bicycle ergometer to check metabolic effectiveness and to evaluate the bicycle as an exerciser for long-duration missions. Ideally, the handlebars would be longer than they are now and would kind of sweep down around you so you could grab them in the right place.
0: The crew also spent a good deal of time discussing with Rusty Swigert the planned repair to Skylab's solar wing. It's interesting to note, at this point in time, the plan was to attempt to free the stuck solar panel during the film retrieval EVA scheduled at the end of the mission on day 26. But circumstances would soon change that plan.
2: Although the crew had earlier encountered a number of equipment problems, the result of excessive temperatures, the prospect now looked bright for a full 28-day mission. The temperature had stabilized in the mid-70s. The food was good, and so was morale. And up to now, the 4,700 watts of available power appeared to be adequate as long as high-load experiments were staggered.
0: Even on day four, the crew had already generated a lot of trash. To get rid of it, It was placed in the trash airlock. This was located at the bottom of the lower deck of the workshop. It was the old S-4B stage's large liquid oxygen tank. To use it, a crewman opened the upper door and inserted a filled trash bag. Then he closed and locked the upper door and opened the lower door into the liquid oxygen tank air in the trash airlock escaped immediately but the bag had to be pushed out with a plunger once that was done the lower door could be closed and the trash airlock refilled with air
1: this was the fourth day
2: in space for the three Skylab astronauts and they now appear to have accomplished their first significant objective making their threatened space station livable the astronauts held a televised news conference today and expressed confidence in the future of the mission. ABC science editor Jules Bergman reports. With the TV camera looking in at their kitchen or ward room, Pete Conrad, Dr. Joe Kerwin, and Paul Weitz were busy with housekeeping chores when the news conference began. Spacecraft Commander Pete Conrad showed people on the ground their view from the spacecraft's kitchen window. Hey, this is really pretty out the window. I'm glad you asked about that. We're just passing over pages through. It's a very clear day today. we can see Vancouver Island. i can see like to go with me on it and Bob the air. I, I'm looking forward to a successful flight at Skyland of 28 days. Uh, I think we overcame our problems, and I think we will improve uh, uh, what we have if we get that other solar panel out. And uh, right now, we're in good shape, I think, to stay 28 days and complete the flight. With the Skylab mission now turned around from failure to success, the crew began their medical experiments, the first of dozens, settling into the routine of learning to live for a month in space, which no one has ever done before. This is Jules Bergman at ABC Space Headquarters.
0: Mission Day 5 was the first day the Apollo telescope mount experiments were powered up. Kerwin and Conrad saw the first beautiful, sharp images. From the H-alpha camera. This was the extreme ultraviolet camera. And the camera that showed continuously. What humans had only seen during rare total eclipses. The solar corona. Still to come were x-ray images. Kerwin recorded video. Used the. TV downlink to show the ground real-time images and began to learn how to use the views to recognize and interpret active regions, such as spotting flares early in their brief violent lifetimes, and to watch for other solar phenomena. The real solar physicists on Earth must have envied him viewing these incredible sights.
2: Science experiments were simultaneously being performed. Here, Pete Conrad operates the Apollo Telescope Mount Control and Display Panel in preparation for the solar physics study. In subsequent operations, data such as this active region of the sun was recorded by the telescope.
0: In the afternoon of the fifth day, Conrad and Kerwin took their turns on the bike and the lower body negative pressure experiment. Pete tried the hardest because he wanted to come back from this mission in good shape, but his heart rate exceeded 180 beats per minute as he tried to ride his three minutes at 75% of maximum. Unfortunately, the old hero couldn't do it, and he experienced a couple of irregular heartbeats while he was trying. Kerwin couldn't do it either. It seemed the harness problem was not going to go away. It was time for an on-board campaign to solve it. As for the lower body negative pressure experiment, The heart rates and symptoms on both Conrad and Kerwin looked about the same as pre-flight so far. The crew became more accustomed to microgravity as they proved they could run around the water ring lockers. But as more equipment went into use, power became a concern. This is the day it was decided The solar wing needed to be freed sooner rather than later.
2: However, by the fifth day, some of the storage batteries had begun to perform in a degraded manner. The power shortage grew critical, and it became apparent that to carry out the mission, the jammed solar panel would have to be deployed.
0: Mission Day 6 began Following the first night, all three crew members slept in their sleep compartments. They reported it was still a little warm, but they slept well and were ready to work. Today, the astronauts would perform the first run of the MQI vestibular function experiment.
2: A rotating litter chair, a part of the human vestibular function experiment, Tested for motion sickness, rotation perception, and ability to determine orientation.
0: This was not a crew favorite experiment on Earth. It was a complex medical experiment designed to examine the function of the human body's balance system in weightlessness. The principal investigator was Dr. Ashton Graybill of the Navy's School of Aerospace Medicine in Pensacola, Florida, a distinguished and experienced scientist. Several tests were part of the MQI, and most of them were easy and interesting. But one of the tests was designed to find out what happens to people's susceptibility to motion sickness in space, and to do that, they had to make them sick. The subject would strap himself into a rotating chair and put on a tiny blindfold consisting of two small eye cups on an elastic band. The crew strangely nicknamed it Minnie's Bra in a reference to Minnie Mouse. The torturer, I mean observer, would start the chair rotating at a rate selected before the flight, and the subject was required to move his head slowly forward and back and side to side at a steady pace. On Earth, this action would result in queasy symptoms after about 70 head movements. Dr. Graybill had defined a symptom complex called Malaise 3. At Malaise 3, the subject usually threw up. Before the mission, the crew strongly objected to the Malaise 3 stage. So, the kind doctor agreed to only take the experiment to stage Malaise 2A, which meant A change in skin pallor, sweating, stomach awareness, then nausea. If the subject stopped right at Malaise 2A, he could probably avoid vomiting. But it was still quite unpleasant. Minnie's bra had to be suitably small so that the observer could detect the subject turning pale. NASA wanted this difficult test performed for several reasons. There had been quite a bit of motion sickness reported in the Russian space program. There were also several suspected cases in NASA's Apollo program, including most notably Apollo 9's Rusty Swagger. The space shuttle was currently being debated in Congress, and it called for an astronaut to land the orbiter manually, a task involving considerable skill. No one wanted to trust a runway landing to a motion-sick pilot. The crew and NASA were so concerned about motion sickness that Pete Conrad was excused from taking the test, so he would always be ready to fly home if an emergency took place aboard Skylab. Today, Paul Weitz was the subject and Dr. Kerwin the observer. Paul had not gotten motion sickness so far, so he really didn't want it now. The first series of head movements would be made with no rotation, and Paul passed with flying colors. He made 150 head movements, the maximum allowed, with none of the symptoms of motion sickness. Still, he had some sensation of rotation, but in general felt fine. Interestingly enough, on day 7, Kerwin underwent the test with rotation At seven and one half revolutions per minute and went 150 head movements with no symptoms. So it was decided to increase the revolution in steps just to get a really good test. On days 12, 16, 20, and 24, Joe and Paul were tested until they were spinning at the maximum safe value of 30 revolutions per minute. Still, no symptoms occurred. This shocked the crew and the investigators. Pete Conrad had been excused for no reason. They concluded that in zero G, once you were adapted, you were immune to space motion sickness now that was some good news for the shuttle program the other big day 6 event was the first use of the earth resources experiment package
2: the earth resources experiment also got underway after activation of the sixth remote sensing system fire S 192 I got a ready light we just came from over the clouds how about that auto sequence start on 90 and uh from a broad field of view provided by this large space platform the systems began photographing selected portions of the earth's surface in the visible and near infrared spectral regions
0: the earth resources experiment package included skylab's complex of cameras designed to take multi-spectral, high-resolution, three-dimensional photographs of ground and ocean locations of scientific interest. The crew would call them targets, which did not please some NASA people who thought that sounded too military. Targets may have been a holdover from the manned orbiting laboratory days. Anyway, Skylab normally pointed its upper side and the Apollo telescope mount solar experiments directly at the sun. It retained this attitude on both the day and night sides of the orbit for two reasons. One, it required minimal fuel, and two, it kept the solar panels perpendicular to the sun whenever the spacecraft was in sunlight in order to achieve maximum electrical power. Remember at this point Skylab only had the Apollo telescope mount solar panels for power so energy was marginal. But to use those Earth cameras they had to be pointed directly at the planet. Skylab had to maneuver out of solar inertial attitude into Local Vertical Attitude. In Local Vertical Attitude, the side of Skylab opposite the Apollo telescope mount was pointed straight down at the Earth at dawn. Then a gentle pitch rate was begun, which rotated Skylab gently nose down, keeping the cameras pointed directly at the Earth for most of one day-side half-orbit. As the targets passed beneath the spacecraft, the various cameras would be operated, often in conjunction with low-altitude photography by aircraft and sometimes observations by scientists on the surface. That done, Skylab would rotate back to solar-inertia attitude. The pass was scheduled for between 3 and 4 p.m. daylight over the United States. The local vertical maneuver was initiated a little after 3, and by 3.30, Pete and Paul were busily photographing sites. Skylab moved rapidly across the United States from northwest to southeast at 4 miles a second. With a lot of good film taken, they shut the cameras down and returned to solar inertial attitude about 4 p.m. As they did, the crew noticed a battery charge light that should not have been on. The bad news was about to happen. At 5.40 p.m., Mission Control asked for Regulators 6, 7, 8, and 16 to be taken off the line to conserve power. They also asked for the Apollo Telescope Mount's Experiment Pointing Control System to be powered down to conserve power, as well as to turn down the airlock module's secondary coolant loop. Houston said a few batteries went down and, quote, we've got a power problem here, end quote. Several batteries reached a state of charge of less than 45% during the Earth Resources Pass, and their controllers took them off the line. They weren't charging. The next hour was spent turning things off and trying to get batteries to recharge, by 6:50 p.m. Houston was able to report, quote, "As we go over the hill here, it looks like the electrical system is at least stable now. The batteries are coming up, so we'll see you at Vanguard." End quote. The next day's Earth Resources run was canceled. Houston realized that there could be no more full passes until and unless the workshop solar wing was freed. Work on that continued with added determination, but morale remained high.
1: The Skylab astronauts spent their sixth day in space taking pictures of the earth and the sun. Temperatures in the cabin were in the mid 80s and Commander Pete Conrad said he was no longer worried about overheating. Much of the work schedule aboard Skylab was canceled today, and the astronauts are experiencing a kind of brownout. Fans in the cabin have been shut off despite temperatures in the 80s, and the astronauts have orders to save whatever electricity they can. There's a possibility that power problems could curtail all three scheduled Skylab missions. Here's more from Roy Neal in Houston. The Skylab astronauts have had to face up to an increasing shortage of electrical power in their orbiting workshop. Today, they had to cut out some important planned studies of Earth resources. Two of 18 batteries on board have failed, and some of the rest are running down faster than expected, so they have to be charged more frequently. That's why planners in mission control had to cut back. Apparently, there's not much that can be done to fix the electrical power system that is working to make it work better. So, a high priority has now been given to a second main system that's not working the solar wings on the main body of the spacecraft. During launch, one was knocked off, the second was jammed. A team of astronauts has been working to find a way to get the jammed wing to swing up and out. If they come up with a solution, Conrad and Weitz will go outside the workshop, in their spacesuits, perhaps as early as Sunday, and try to fix it. If they can't, the second crew to go up will have to take special tools because the wing repair job has become so important. But the second system has its own set of batteries and chargers. Without power from them, the entire Skylab program will be extremely limited. On the plus side, today the astronauts were able to use their solar telescopes. They sent back television showing the commander, Pete Conrad, working the complicated controls, sighting the sun, and sending back pictures like this one, a coronagraph blocking out the sun's rays so that scientists could study the corona, much like an eclipse of the sun here on Earth. Tomorrow, the astronauts are scheduled for a day off in space, but they may put the television camera that made these pictures outside for a good look at the jammed solar wind that has become so important. Roy Neal, NBC News, Houston.
0: Mission Day 7 started out on a relaxed note, with NASA reading the latest news up to the crew. In the morning, Pete took the sound pressure level meter out of storage and went through Skylab taking measurements. It turned out that the spacecraft was pretty quiet. The sound levels in the workshop averaged between 45 and 50 decibels. The multiple docking adapter returned a reading of 53. That was about the level of a quiet office. The noisiest compartment was at the aft end of the station. It was the structural transition section leading into the airlock module where the pumps and fans registered 62. Of course, the noise characteristics of Skylab was affected due to the atmospheric pressure. On Earth at sea level, atmospheric pressure is 14.7 PSI. But Skylab's pressure was only 5 pounds per square inch, about one-third of standard Earth pressure. I am sure you recall that the higher you go above sea level, the thinner the air gets and the atmospheric pressure decreases. The 5 psi experienced on Skylab was the equivalent pressure of about 20,000 feet above the Earth. At this pressure, the crew had to raise their voice to be heard by someone just 10 feet away. Thus, normal voice communication between the workshop and the multi-docking adapter was impossible. To compensate, the crew used intercom boxes to communicate. The good part was that an astronaut could play his own kind of music at the Apollo telescope mount control panel and not disturb another astronaut playing his music down in the medical experiment area. All three crewmen tried multiple times on day seven to solve the bicycle ergometer problem. They adjusted the harnesses, tightened or loosened, changed the angle of the foot straps, Raised or lowered the seat, but nothing seemed to work. Another persistent problem came up on day 7. It seemed to be taking too long to do things. The crew was still behind the timeline, or behind their schedule. Calibrating the body mass measurement device, got Joe an hour and a half behind schedule by noon.
2: Body mass measurement to determine each crewman's daily weight and to validate the use of this device for weighing in zero G.
0: Houston wanted Paul to reinstall an experiment to which he said, quote, Okay, is that in my flight plan? And Houston said to Paul it was, and he said, oh, okay, I hadn't read that far ahead yet. I'm still trying to catch up. Sorry. End quote. At the end of the day, Pete expressed the frustrations of the crew to Capcom. He complained that the schedulers were slipping things into the pre- and post-sleep activities every day without adding the time to accomplish them. Furthermore, he said that the crew had already given up shaving in the mornings and they now do it late at night, 10 p.m. Also, the scheduler estimates for small activation tasks were completely wrong. He complained that handovers took time that was not allowed and he had alarm clocks going off in his pocket. And if they would look back over his flight plan, he had been busy all over the spacecraft this day. This little bit of venting by Pete was indeed foreshadowing what would occur with the next Skylab crew. Unfortunately, neither crew nor schedulers had discovered that it takes longer to do things in space than on the ground. Especially the first time the crew had to do something complicated, it seemed to take twice as long as it did in training. In fact, it took about four times performing the complicated task before the astronauts could do it as quickly as they did pre-flight. But, things were getting a little better And the best part was tomorrow, day 8, was a well-earned day off. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 408 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab 2, Days 2 through 7. Our next episode should be released on or about March 2nd, 2023. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email in the text box. This episode, we are celebrating 10 years of the podcast. We will have a a few special guests, including a former president of the United States. And, of course, the Tang Ceremony, so you'll want to stick around for that. I also wanted to remind everyone that we have added two new methods of contributing to the podcast for your convenience. That is Zelle and Venmo. You can use these to send money to my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, Justin. Also, put the QR codes for my Zelle and Venmo on the homepage for your convenience. And some of you have already begun using this, and we appreciate it. Speaking of donations, if you have not checked your name on the donors page for 2023 yet, go ahead and do that and make sure there's no problems, and if there are, we will be happy to fix that. Just give us an email, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 227 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you'd like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at space rocket Hist, And you can follow on Facebook as well as Patreon. My Patreon page is at patreon.com slash space rocket History. I have a few afterthoughts. As always, I apologize for my mispronunciations, and I want to explain what I was doing with this episode. Last week we covered our last episode, we covered how the Skylab was rescued by the parasol and getting the solar wing unstuck. Well, to do that, we had to skip ahead to June 7th. Thus, we left out a lot of days that the crew was working on other things. So, My intention was and is to cover what happened on the days we skipped and, of course, the rest of the mission. Well, how about that spinning chair vomit comet experiment? If I am ever compelled to take it, I want to stop at malaise stage 1. No stage 3 for me. Unless... It is in space, of course. But that really was an important experiment for the shuttle. And it's a good thing they did that because it was a big concern. How would you like that callback to the manned orbiting laboratory? (laughs) Don't you think that is why they were using the name Target on the Earth Resources Experiment? These were military men, of course, so... I can understand why they would call it a target, but it does sound a bit military. (laughs) And speaking of that, Earth Resources Experiment, I believe that was the straw that broke the camel's back with the power system. I am surprised NASA would even try that maneuver while they were rationing power. They did have, they didn't have, but like I think it was 4.7 kilowatts coming out of that Apollo telescope mount in full sun. And that was to run the whole station, charge the batteries and everything. So why would they take it off for offline for an hour? They sure paid for that mistake. Hey, in our personal life, the boys, that is the grandsons, Luke, Josh, and Zach, went out to the field and launched some rockets with me, In honor of our 10th year celebration. And uh, we had a great time. Mrs. SRH got us a couple. Got us two packs of uh, D12-5s. And the rest were old rocket engines that I had left over. Some A's and B's and C's. And uh, I had made two rockets with my old uh, cheapy 3D printer. And uh, they were red. I had this red filament to make it with, so they looked pretty good. One was about two feet tall, so to do that, you had to put it together in sections. And uh, the other one, that, that one was two foot tall. It was really heavy. And the other one was about a foot tall and much lighter. I nicknamed the small one the Scud. It didn't even have a parachute but it did have a very sharp pointed nose cone. (laughs) The two foot rocket, I barely got the engine to fit in. And I figured it would not go that high since it was so heavy. Because that was was probably the heaviest rocket I've ever launched. But that D took it up, I'd say about 600 feet and uh, burnt the shock cord, which in this case was a rubber band (laughs) <laughs> so it came down in two pieces, and I lost the nose cone. And when it hit the ground, it came apart. <laughs> but that's part of the fun. I don't know why we like that so much. It's just part of the fun. Now, the Scud had a great flight and landed in the neighbor's field, so we had to go over there and get it. Uh, grandson Luke had a 16-inch STs rocket, just a standard Looking rocket, and it had a great flight it uh I put a c six five in that one, and it landed in the in the top of a seventy five foot tall tree, so it's still there and will probably be disintegrated slowly as it rains <laughs> I had a a b six four for josh's s t s and he had a pretty good flight, except the parachute lines failed. And then Zach had about a 14 inch STs that I put a A83 in and launched it. And then I put a, a B size engine in as well. So it got launched twice and we recovered it both times. So that was a pretty good day there. Then I found an old STs that I'd made years ago and it, it had a D size engine in it as though it had been prepped so now it was kind of looked like a v2 it was called the dur v3 is what it was called and boy i loved launching that thing it it had a great flight and it went just the wind caught it and went just a tad too far north and it got caught just in the edge of a big tree and it was, uh, about, uh, it was hung on a branch about 18 feet off the ground. But we did, after some time, get it down. So we had a great time launching Rocket with the grandsons. And I recommend that highly for you all to uh, enjoy that hobby if you can. Okay, that's about all I have for my personal life. It is our 10-year anniversary, and we would like to celebrate that. We broke a few records with this celebrations. This is the largest group we have had to participate in the Tang ceremony, and I think it is the most people that have been in this little studio at one time. I'm going to ask everyone here to step up to the microphone and say your first name and your relationship to Mr. and Mrs. SRH. I am Grinson Evan. I am Mr. and Mrs. SRH's grandson, Zach. I am grandson, Josh. And I'm grandson, Luke. Hi, listeners. I'm daughter, Stephanie. I am webmaster, Justin.
2: And I'm holding little May, granddaughter May.
0: Okay, thank you. We have some tang here. Everybody grab their glasses. If you're at home... You can pause the podcast and and go get yours and we will be, and we will wait for you. Okay, we're back. Now, let's do, put the tang in. I'm going to take the top off the lid. And we'll take our spoon. We had to dispense a lot of tang today. And we'll put some in. All right, everybody else has their tang all ready to go. Well, let's stir it up. Okay, we got it. All right, this is a toast to 10 years of the Space Rocket History Podcast. Yay! Yay! Delicious. All right. Thank you, everybody, for coming over and participating. I really appreciate it. Now we have one more very special guest, a former president of the United States who actually served during the Apollo era. Now, you may say, Mike, how is this possible? Well, let me tell you. Early in the, Earlier in this week, I got a package in the mail. From somebody called Mr. Peabody. I opened it up. And it was an old dial up telephone. That had the words printed on it. The Wayback phone. Of course. There was a note. And it said. Prepare for a phone call. On February 13th. And then it gave me the address. I had to return the phone to. After I received the call. So. I had it here at the podcast studio desk all day Tuesday so I could record whoever was calling me. And sure enough, the phone rang at 12 o'clock noon. I picked it up, and this is what I heard.
1: I'm talking to you by telephone from the over room at the White House. And this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made. Uh, I just can't tell you how proud we all are of what you For every American, this has to be the proudest day of our lives. And for people all over the world, I am sure they too join with Americans in recognizing what an immense feat this is. Because of what you have done, the heavens have become a part of man's world. For one priceless moment in the whole history of man, all the people on this earth are truly one. One in their pride in what you have done.
0: Why, thank you, Mr. President. I just didn't realize I had that kind of reach. I didn't know it was such a big deal, but boy, I, I surely do appreciate you traveling 50 years through time and uh, giving me a call on the way back phone. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that. I couldn't resist. That, of course, was uh, a recording taken from uh, Apollo 11 when President Nixon congratulated Neil and Buzz on the moon. (laughs) And I thought it would be fun for the 10th anniversary. Okay, let's move on from the celebration. Over the past fortnight, we received 13 donations and pledges, and I would like to thank Scott Y., who donated at the Orion level, Andrew S. from Australia, who donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji, Ryan M. from Michigan, who donated at the Apollo level and earned a satellite emoji, Ron F., who donated at the Apollo level, Robert N. donated at the Gemini level and earned an alien emoji. Alan M. from Michigan donated at the Mercury level and earned a satellite emoji. Stephen M. from California donated at the Mercury level and earned a space communications dish emoji. Jackie B. from the UK donated at the Vostok level. Michael B. donated at the Vostok level. Synaptic Games pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Micah G. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Nanya pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. And Jim D. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level and earned a satellite emoji. Our total Patreon donors for 2023 have reached 242. I think we lost one from last time, probably due to a credit card expiring. Our total donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and checks, for 2023, have reached 276 with an overall goal of 450 for this year. So if you're enjoying the podcast that's been running for 10 years now without commercial interruption and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com, clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link, or donating using one of the QR codes through Venmo or Zelle or using my and uh, sending those to my email address spacerockethistory at gmail.com and by the way if you began the emoji maneuver last year now is an excellent time to complete it. We have about 30 supporters who have earned the Nova emoji for eight years of support and I want to give them a big shout out and thank you right now. It's a big new John B, Brendan, William, Andre, Craig, Andrew W., Andrew R., Tom Scott, Colm, Harold, Henry, James P., Simeon, Victor, Yorg, David R., Christoph C., Andrew, Eric, Jim, Patrick, Christopher, George H., Don, Troy, Merrick, John C., Matthew D., and Craig H. Thank you so much for hanging in there with us for eight years. Now, here is Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway.
2: Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Simon Rouse, Simon Rouse, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 276 of you who have contributed thus far in 2023.
0: My sources for this episode were NASA, ABC News, NBC News, CBS News, Rocket and Space Technology Website, Skylab America's Space Station by David Shaler, NASA Skylab Owner's Workshop Manual by David Baker, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Outpost on the Frontier by Jay Chaldick, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that is all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 409 posted on or about March 2nd. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.